All right, this morning, uh, if you have a Bible, James 1, Deuteronomy 6, Exodus chapter 17. Those are some of the places we will be going. All right, we are currently in the middle of a seven-week study on the subject of temptation. So what I want to do is I want to kind of remind us where we've been and then try to at least advance this a little bit. Um, We needed to advance this a lot today. I was going to use Sunday school for this and this hour and this evening, um, but because of the way things kind of took shape this morning, we changed our focus for Sunday school, which then now forces us to go back to that tonight. So yeah, so I'm messing everything up the way I've approached this. I should have just probably stuck with this, but we've been working on the subject of temptation. So here's where we've been. We started in James chapter one, all right? And in James chapter one, we started structuring a definition of temptation, all right? Because if you read James chapter one, verse two, we read these words, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. And we started building our definition of the word temptation, trying to figure out exactly what it is or isn't. And we did so by looking really at two Greek words, all right? Now, the first Greek word is used right there in James 1, 2, all right? And I don't know if you remember, but just for review's sake, it was this word, if I can uh, get back to it, if you remember, I have it written down, but just so that everyone can hear it. James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And it was this Greek word. Does everybody remember this one? Strong's G, 3986, pyrosmos. 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 And remember pyrosmos, there were three elements to pyrosmos. Everybody remember those three elements? An enticement to evil, a trial, and testing, all right? So we started building the idea that a temptation is an enticement to evil and trial that tries to get us in our thinking and our speaking and our feeling, desiring, and action to do that which is contrary to God's word. Why does it occur? To test to see what we really are inside. That test reveals what we are in the inside. Therefore, we count it all joy because why do we count it all joy? We don't count it all joy that we go through the trial or we count it all joy because of the horrible thing that happens because that's disturbing, but we count it all joy because no matter what happens, no matter if it's an enticement to evil or no matter it's a trial, it does what? It reveals to us what's going on on the inside of us so that we have a greater chance to acknowledge it, deal with it, and move forward, all right? That's that's a really quick easy overview, right? So pyrosmos was the first Greek word. Everybody remember the second Greek word? All right, the second Greek word is found there, I believe in James 1, 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, all right? If you'll remember, uh, let no man say when he is tempted that it's this Greek word. We got pyrosmos and then we had this one, remember? Strong's G, 3985. Pyrazo. 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 Now, if you remember, Pyrazo basically carried the same basic elements. Everybody remember that? All right. It's to try. To, it's the idea of trying a thing, to test. All right. So we have some of the basic same elements, right? So we have, and just remember, 
We, we did something different than most commentaries and most churches. Most churches want to separate a trial from a temptation. Remember, I said no. Because the word temptation involves both. Because every trial is what? It is a temptation, and to deny that is ridiculous. Because every trial, you are challenged to possibly think, speak, feel, desire, and act in a way which is contrary to God's word. So they work together. Temptation and enticement and a trial, they both serve as a temptation, but they serve as a test to show us what's going on inside of us. All right, And so we, we looked at that and we talked a lot about counting it, counting it all joy. There was a lot more in James that we didn't get into. Remember, what was the big, what's the big troubling verse in James 1? Okay, verse 13. Why is verse 13 uh, difficult? Because it says that God does not tempt. But if God does not tempt, you see the difficulty? Because part of temptation is a trial. So is God not involved in the trial and we know london baptist confession westminster confession what's the way people try to get around it is that god uses what they call secondary causes so god is not one directly tempting but he's indirectly involved because he decrees the trial allows it controls it and limits it so that that's but how god is involved is a never-ending uh problem all right Then we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 4. We spent a couple of hours on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4, and we tried to see what? The correlation between the two, right? And once again, we were kind of left with God's involvement in it, right? How God is involved, and we tried to see the correlation. And I think we did a pretty good job by realizing that, uh, well, we won't go through everything that we did there, but we did a pretty good job in Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. I don't, feel, I don't feel the need to do a lot of review because I think we spent three hours, I think we spent three hours, Sunday school, Sunday morning, and a Sunday night on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. That's a lot of work. So I don't, it's all online. So that brought us to this week. This week has all been Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew chapter 4. Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew chapter 4. Now, I mentioned this yesterday. I'm not going to go through this. If you look at the curriculum for the Bible study exercise this week, they do a weird thing. They start with Matthew 4, kind of work on Matthew 4, then go to Deuteronomy 6. So this is just, before we do anything else, I want to just remind us of a very important hermeneutical principle. All right, I want everyone to get this hermeneutical principle down. Whenever you're reading the New Testament... If you're sitting in church and you're listening to a sermon and they're preaching through the New Testament and somewhere in the New Testament they acknowledge that that New Testament verse is referencing directly or indirectly an Old Testament passage and they simply quickly go reference it and then immediately go back to the New Testament passage, you know you're doing it incorrectly. Why? Because the minute you know that a New Testament passage is referencing directly or indirectly an Old Testament passage, what, what does that, if you were to compare hermeneutics to road signs, what road sign is that New Testament text giving you? Okay. Well, I'm going to say a stop sign telling you to stop and telling you to turn around and you need to go all the way back 
to the Old Testament, and then where do you need to do? Not just reference it. You got to go study it. You got to know the who, what, where, when, how. And once you figure all of that out, then you go back to the New Testament. What do we find sometimes when we go back to the New Testament? That sometimes they seem to be using it. Remember we talked about this in Romans? We spent like almost two months on this subject. New Testament writers use Old Testament passages in all kinds of weird ways, right? Sometimes they reference an Old Testament passage, and what does the New Testament writer seem to be doing? They seem to ignore the Old Testament context. And you're like, what is going on? But for you, you have to study the Old Testament context. All right? So if you're listening to a sermon and they're going through the Gospel of John, and they're like, oh, Jesus here is referencing Deuteronomy. And then they just flip over, read it, and then move on? Sorry. You, should, you, you possibly should consider leaving that church. I know that that's a ra- radical statement, but I'm telling you, that's not, that's not the way. And they, they do that because they're like, well, we've only got four weeks in this series. No, you don't. You've got a year. You've got as long as you want in that series. That garbage that you're limited. I can't stand when preachers say that. Well, we can't cover it because we've only got six weeks in this series. You've got as long as you want in this series. Right? I mean, every week you're coming to church, you're going to hear a sermon. So who cares if you spend six weeks on one passage? So, because it's doing a disservice, right? Because you've got to know that Old Testament passage. The New Testament, if the New Testament's taking the time to quote it or reference it, that's just tell, it's screaming at you, stop what you're doing and go back. So I was kind of, I was kind of blown away that the, the curriculum, kind of like, hey, we're in Matthew 4, let's work on Matthew 4, then let's go to Deuteronomy 6. It should have been, we're in Matthew 4, and it quotes Deuteronomy 6. So let's just go, let's immediately go to Deuteronomy 6 and spend the time there. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy 6. We're, in, we're just going to skip Matthew 4 right now. All right, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 6. We're not going to get far, just so that you know. All right? The curriculum wants us to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And wants us to start in verse 16. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Now, we know God is talking to Israel, yes? Everybody understands that he's talking to Israel? Good, we're, I mean, look at verse Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. Okay, all right. He's clearly talking to Israel, right? And then what does he say in verse 16? Ye, who's the ye? Israel. Israel. Shall, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him, past tense, in Massa. Everybody see it? Okay. Now, immediately, this, uh, one of the reasons I love following a curriculum, the reason I love following other books is because they take you maybe in a direction you would not go, right? So, for example, we're studying temptation. 
Typically, when you study temptation, how do, what's the focus on studying temptation? Isn't it typically giving us five or six steps that we can stand, withstand temptation and how to fight temptation? Yes? Immediately, this tells me they're taking it in a completely different direction, right? Because now, it's not about me standing against temptation. It's about me not doing what? About us, now, specifically about Israel not tempting God. But if you're going to make it about us, immediately, then what happens? We have to consider temptation from a completely different perspective. This is not about me being tempted. This is about me doing the tempting. It's not about me being tested. It's about me doing the testing. That's a that's something that I've not given. Have you given much, whenever you've studied temptation, have you given that much thought? We always think of the temptation or the testing, what? That we experience. How in the world now am I doing the testing and tempting of God? This raises all kinds of questions, does it not? So we got to figure that out. Yeah, we got to figure that out. But immediately, what what should this show you? Read the rest of that verse. No, no, no. Verse 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And remember what I just gave you, a hermeneutical principle? What, what, what road sign is that? Stop and go, go back. Because now this is making a reference to something else. Because now we, they are not to tempt God or test God, but now we have an example of when they actually did it. So now we can get an idea of what it actually means to tempt God. What passage is he referencing? Exodus 17. So we're going to be, uh, you know, obviously this morning we're not going to get past Exodus 17, are we? We're not. We're not. All right. So Here's what I want. So here's what I want you to think. Just turn to Exodus 17, and when you get there, just stop. Don't start reading. Here we go. I want everyone to think about this. All right. Our goal today, and we're not going to finish it this morning. We need to finish it tonight. So now I don't know what to do because we got to do Song of Solomon tonight. We got too many issues to work on. We need about 50 hours of church per week. Okay. But here we go. This is what I want us to consider. We have to figure out what it means to tempt God or to test God. That's the, that's the what we have to fear. And our study of temptation, we've tried to define temptation, yes. We've tried to understand what it means to count it all joy. We've tried to understand God's involvement in it. We've tried to see the connection between Deuteronomy and Matthew, uh, De- Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. So we've worked on all of those. For this week, we have to figure out what does it mean to tempt or try God? Because it's something clearly Israel did and he, they're being told to not do it, and it's clearly then something that we need to know what it is because it would sound like it's something that what we should do. Avoid it. So what does it mean? We could, if I gave everyone a piece of paper, you probably could all have your suggestions of what it is, but I don't know if we really know. So to me, the best way to answer that question is to do what? Go find an example where someone actually did it. But Exodus 17 there's some weird things about this passage that I just don't understand. All right, so you'll see. Here we go. You ready? 
Deuteronomy, Exodus 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed. Stop right here. Just make sure we understand. We're still talking about Israel. So just before, this is very important. As much as we need to figure out for us, we have to remember Exodus, Deuteronomy, our, our primary focus is on Israel, not on us. Everybody understand that? All right, we got to make sure we at least interpret it that way. This is about Israel, all right? So they are doing what? Journey, right? They're taking a journey from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandments of the Lord. Now stop right there. Their journeys are following whose commandments? All right, the Lord commanded. Now, remember remember back to our previous issue, God's involvement. This journey is being led by whom? God. This journey is being led by God. You can't get God, I mean, no matter how much we want to remove God, it's always difficult because God always is doing what? Inserting himself, right? He's doing the journey. He's doing, he's doing, he's commanding the journey. They pitched and Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now immediately, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us God led them directly where? To where there's no water. Now, please note how this game is played. I, I know, I'm not saying this makes a lot of sense, but this is how we try to get around it theologically. God's not responsible for the temptation. What's responsible for the temptation? The lack of water. God's not directly doing the tempting. The direct source of temptation is the lack of water. So therefore, God gets off the hook. But do you see how kind of flimsy that is? Because who led them there? (laughs) Who knew there was no water there? God. Who knew what was going to happen? God, right? So it's, it's still odd. I understand trying to be the direct cause versus the indirect cause to make us all feel better, but okay, all right? Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses. Now, the word chide, let's look up the word chide. What is the word chide? How does the NIV translate it? Quarreled. They quarreled. Let's look at the word chide and see all the different ways. It's a, we have quarreled. We have chided. All right, let's see what we get here. We get Exodus 17. That's verse what? Two. Let's open up the antilinear. And what do we have here? And wherefore did chide. It's this Hebrew word. Strong's H7378. Reeve. Reeve. And second entry, Reeve, Reeve. All right, Reeve. I, I'm glad I listened to that because I would have said it completely different. I would have said Reeve, okay, but it's Reeve, right? So I'm glad I listened to that, or I would have said it completely incorrectly. All right. Now, if we look at Strong's definition, it means to what? To toss, grapple, to wrangle, to hold a controversy, to defend, 
adversary, chide, complain, contend, debate, lay, wait, plead, rebuke, strive thoroughly. Right? In other words, they get into basically what? They basically are ready to start verbally arguing, attacking, wrestling, fighting with Moses. Now immediately, what, what, what what should be our first thought here? My first thought is, why are they arguing with Moses? Yeah, but I'm just saying, God, Moses wasn't leading them. God was leading them. I mean, the text makes it clear, right? Go back to Exodus, uh, or Exodus 17, verse 1. According to the commandments of the Lord. Everybody see that? God is the one leading them. So you would think like, guys, why are you fighting with Moses? Now, this is kind of interesting, right? Because in this text, we know, according to Deuteronomy 6, that this is about tempting God. Yes? But you would almost seem that their action would be tempting whom? Moses, right? And someone like, well, poor Moses is in, in, in this. What about him? Right? But the focus here is not on tempting Moses, it's tempting God. So immediately what we have a tendency to do, and we can all, everyone can relate to this. Not only can we relate to, um, not only can we relate to Israel here, we can definitely understand this. That when we find ourselves in a situation we do not like, as Christians, we almost immediately our go-to way of thinking is not to blame God. We always will blame what? Circumstance or people. Circumstance or people. We never, the two things we don't blame are ourselves and God, right? That's, that's good Christians. We don't blame ourselves. And we, we, don't even, we don't even like to blame selves for our depravity, right? We blame Satan. We blame Hollywood. We blame, we don't ever want to blame ourselves, Right? So it's just interesting, they immediately begin fighting with Moses. And what do they say? Verse 2, Exodus 17, 2. Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? Now here we go. All right, how are they tempting the Lord? What is the word tempt here? Let's look up the word tempt. Look up the word tempt. Now, I know those who've been working on this all week, they may have focused on something completely different, but this is what I'm focusing on, all right? All right, verse 2. I'm going to open up the interlinear. Do ye tempt? It is this Hebrew word. Strong's age, 5254. Nasa. Nassau. Nassau. Now, Nassau is used 36 times, 20 times prove, 12 times tempt, two times assay, and one time adventure. Uh, in its strongest definition, Nassau is what? To test by implication to attempt, adventure, prove, tempt, try. According to Brown's uh, driver, Briggs lexicon, the outline is basically this to test, try, prove, or tempt. To test, try, or prove, or attempt. So you got a lot of words there, right? You've got to test, 
to try to prove and tempt. All, very similar to what we talked about temptation was in James 1, right? And this weird? We're flipping it around. We talked about the temptation that we face, right? That does what? Entice? Tr- test or trial? And test. Now, this is them. Are they enticing God? Are they testing God? Are they trying God? Like, it's a roundabout way. Now they're doing it to God. And that's and that, and that kind of an interesting flip in, in narrative here. Now, the question is, what does it mean when we do this to God? So here, if we go back to Exodus 17, if we're to look at what we've seen so far, Moses is inferring that they are tempting God, yes? You are tempting God. He doesn't say, hey, hey, you're getting close to doing it. He seems to infer that they're doing it. So, based off this, I'm not saying this makes any sense yet, but what would it mean in the context in which we've read, what equals tempting God in this context? Okay, do you think the demanding is the tempting part? You think the quarreling is? What would the quarreling, what would the quarreling uh, and the demanding, what would the quarreling and the demanding seem to, okay, do, so, yeah, I mean, I, we just have to try to figure this out, right? We got to figure out what it means. So, the quarreling, the fighting and the demanding seems to indicate to them, and I'm just going to throw this out there to see if you agree, almost an unwillingness to accept what God has brought into their life, right? It's it's a lack of trust. I think it seems to be. They don't really seem to indicate here much of a lack of trust. They just don't like what God has brought them, right? God brought them here, and what's their reaction? Well, it's not even what the results now. They're just not happy with the situation, are they? I'm not going to accept this situation. Moses, why? Why did you bring us here? We want water. So it's it's almost a... Can you almost... I I think it's fair to say it's almost a rebellious attitude, right? Right? It's like if if you have your kids in the car, you drive them somewhere, you get out, and they're like, Why did you bring us here? We don't want to be here. Take us somewhere else. Give us this now. How would you view that chiding with you? Rebellion. Not happy with your... They don't like your leading. They don't like what you brought them. They don't like what's not there. And they want you to do what? Give them what they want now. And typically as a parent, does that... Does that provoke you? I mean, not me. I mean, I'm, I'm so low-key and calm. I'm like, you're right. Let's get in the car and go where you want, right? That's how I, ha- okay, no, nobody believes that about me. I am pretty low-key and calm. Really. I'll just, I go along with anything, okay, okay, okay. okay. Uh, no, she's the one out of control. I, I am the rock of stability, okay? No emotions at all, right? None. Emotionalists, right? No, I'm like a rock in the middle of a stormy sea. Okay, right. None of this is true. Okay, right. Okay, but but 
So if we, so then tempting God would be almost a rebellious attitude that could provoke. Now, it's weird to think that we could provoke God. Like that's hard for me to wrap wrap my mind around, right? So I think what we have to understand this is that this is speaking of an action, right? That is contrary to God, but it's utilizing uh, terminology that we can understand from a human perspective. We can all understand being provoked by someone's actions, right? Yes? So it's using that language in a humanistic way because clearly you can't provoke a God who already knows what's going to happen, right? So we got to be very careful because you can almost turn God into a, a human, right? That God's just there going, oh, how dare you talk to me that way? Well, that, that just seems, that seems like a weird way to view God, right? Clearly, God's like, here you go. There you go. And now their action from a, from a humanistic perspective is provoke. I, I almost want to use the word, well, the Hebrew word, did it use the word provoke? It did. I almost want to see it as a provoking way, right? Like, uh, look, you, I, they're, because their chiding is really with God, right? So they're argumentative with God, uh, basically saying, why did you bring me here? Why did you lead me here? And look, uh, we've all been there. Or at least I can speak in my life. There's plenty of places God has brought me that I don't know why God has brought me there. And it makes no sense from a human perspective. But, because we all know where, that in, in every area of life, God, cannot, God could clearly have not led them to a place where there was no water. Right? He could have clearly led them to a he could have led them to a place, I'm sorry, he clearly could have led them to a place where there was water, right? But he clearly led them to a place where there wasn't, and it makes no sense. Because why bring them there? Now, if we go back to James 1, he brought them there, even though he's not directly involved in the temptation, which is of course hard for me to wrap my mind, but he did so because he was going to try to show them what? What was inside of them. So as soon as they started feeling that argument they should have been like whoa we got a problem my attitude is wrong i'm not submitting to god's will because if god brought me here i'm supposed to be here why he brought me to a place where there's no water i don't understand but they could have approached moses like do you see the difference in how you could approach moses hey moses we're a little frustrated we know that god's leading you could you figure out and under, help us understand why we've been brought to a place where there's no water when clearly God could have t- taken us somewhere where there is water? Now, it's not our will. It's his will, but we're a little confused. That's far different, right? That's a, that's a humbling, questioning, acknowledging what? What is wrong inside of us, right? right? That, that, that's different, now, I don't always approach it that way, but that's how we should. Now, what we can see what happens here, right? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured. Now, please note, seemingly to infer what? What does verse 3 seemingly infers, or at least implies? That they didn't really listen to Moses' rebuke. Why are you tempting me? And what do they continue to do? They just seem to continue. The people thirsted for water. Now, you can't really blame them for thirsting, right? I mean, people get thirsty. Can't blame them for thirsting. 
all right? That it's always, that's always something to consider. True. Right, good point. I, I, that's a good point. Right? We don't, to be honest, we don't know how desperate their situation was. Because we all know, I mean, I don't do this. But, you know, sometimes when you've only you know, been 30 minutes without food, you fall on the floor and you start wailing like I'm going to die of starvation. But in reality, you're not really starving. Right? I mean, have you ever done that? Like, I mean, you know, like I walk outside and it's, you know, I say it's 170 degrees when in reality it's only... 80, right? I mean, it's going to be a 90-something today. So, but I, I, that, that you could say that I exaggerate. I mean, I, know, I don't, but someone could accuse me of that. You're a good point. We don't really know how desperate their situation is. We know they want. We don't know how much they need, but we know they want it. So, to be fair, we don't know. But it does raise the question that, Trusting God or following God is always easy when your needs and your wants are met. The minute God withholds a want or especially a need, <laughs> all of a sudden we're like, God, uh, you are, don't know what you're doing. Like it's, it, it, when everything's great, right? When everything's great. But you can just, you can withhold certain things. Everyone has those wants and those needs that if they are withheld, they're going to have some problems, right? Your wants and your needs may be different than my wants and needs, but once those get withheld, even though we may not say, God, what are you doing? It leads to some confusion, right? Because because your your almost thought is, well, God, if you take away the want or, or if you don't provide the want and the need, what am I supposed to do? And the answer seems to be, do what? Don't tempt God. Submit to God that God wants me in a place where this... That is hard to say. Hey, I have this want and this need. And God's like, well, that's okay. I, I, that's hard for me to say. But they could co- keep complaining, do they not? All right? And, they, and once again, they're still murmuring against whom? But we know ultimately it's against God. And said, wherefore is that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Now, this point, now they're, they're basically saying, well, what are they basically saying? To God. Is God, you made a mistake. You brought us here to kill us. They're calling into question, they're calling into question God's covenant. God's promise, God's character, God's leading. They're, I mean, this, to to tempt or provoke God here is they're calling into question God's character. God's wisdom. I mean, they're calling into question all of God's attributes. They're calling, obviously, his question into his knowledge, his will, his character. I mean, they're going all in. Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, now if Moses is accurate, that means these people, really, who are they trying to stone? They're really trying to kill God. Well, not just because he's God's rep, it's because God's the one doing the leading. I mean, they're really ticked off at God here. Now, and now listen, I want to make it very clear. 
I think it's okay at times to be ticked off at God if we are open and honest with it. I think that's kind of the, in the Psalms, they're called the lament Psalms where they cry out in anguish. I always refer to the lament Psalms as our, it's almost a spiritual scream where we scream. Job lamented with some strong words. I think you have, look, there, you're not going to get any, you're not, there's nothing good's going to come if you are taking your anger with God and directing it at someone else. Your bitterness is with God because God puts you in the situation. You're not going to get anywhere until you acknowledge your bitterness is with whom? God. I'm not saying that's where you should stay, but you got to just acknowledge it, right? Like, you can look at any situation. I don't know where it's situations you've ever found yourself, but you can find yourself in situations and like, God, I don't understand why you put me here. It's better just to say, God, I don't understand it, than to say, it's Bobby's fault. Right? It's better to say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. But we never really do that. I I don't want to take it too far out of its context, but just for application, because I I got uh, an email just, I think, last night. Someone talking about the church they went to, basically full-blown split. They called it a, like a coup attempt. So, you know, I guess the people tried to take over the church and it all fell apart and they had to leave the church. I wonder how many times when there's problems in the church. Now, just, just a theory, right? Got to be careful with this, but just a theory. I wonder how many times that our issue, that everyone leaves the church to go somewhere else, but I wonder if the really issue is with God and not with the pastor. Right? Because if you're in the church, you're if because like these people want to go back. Like sometimes our situation, we want to leave our situation instead of stay in the situation, believing that God may have us in this situation for a purpose. Right? Now I'm not saying that it's always that easy because someone could teach false doctrine and then you know, say, well, you can't leave. I'm not one of those to say a person can't. Yeah, everyone knows how I am about people leaving. You're, the door opens both ways, right? You can walk in, you can walk out, and I'm not chasing you across the parking lot to beg you to come back. And the reason I'm not going to beg you to come back is because typically to beg you to come back only delays the inevitable, right? So just you're free to go. I'm not going to call. I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to let you go because, because if I beg you to stay, then typically I have to do something to please them, and then either one, then they want more and more and more. But the point is, I want some, sometimes I wonder what the problems in church is the problem is not with people. The problem is someone has a problem with God. I'm not saying that always works, but in this situation, they're blaming Moses, and it's not Moses' fault. Their issue is with God. So I wonder sometimes when we get upset about a situation, is our real, we're really upset with God. I mean, that could, that mean that, that, that's something to really consider. The next time you're frustrated about a situation, you're upset about a situation, are, who are you really upset with? The person, whomever it may be, child, spouse, parent, or are you upset with God? Just, just I, I, I don't know how to put, pull all of that in, but in, at least in this historical situation, they're so mad, they're ready to stone him. Now, this is where the story gets confusing to me. And we won't get uh, beyond this. What in the world is going on in verse 5 to 7? 
What happens in five through seven? They get water. They get water. Now, what do we typically say if a, if a child is chiding with you, fighting with you, and arguing with you because they're not getting what they want? What do we typically, what, what would be some parental advice given? You ain't getting it, right? In good Texas terminology, you ain't getting it, right? You ain't getting it. Because we're going to try to teach them a lesson. It's bizarre. Don't tempt God. But your tempting of God gets you exactly what you desire. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, have you ever read that and stopped and paused? Like when I was reading it this week, I was like, God, why are you giving them the water? But what does it seem to indicate? This indicates God's grace, right? They don't deserve grace here. They're grumbling, complaining, ready to kill Moses. I mean, from a Moses perspective, you got to be somewhat frustrated here, right? You're like, these people want to kill me and you're going to give them what they want? How about you send them back to Egypt and you let me walk in peace until I get to the promised land? Yeah, yeah, next time it doesn't go. So so let's just read it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod where thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee, that upon the rock in Horeb, that thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. Now, I want to just throw this out there. I'm not going to go far into this right now, but I want to throw this concept out. That rock, that, that in a sense that is there, is that rock mentioned in the New Testament? See if y'all can find it. I will give you a clue. How about 1 Corinthians. See if you can find it. I just want to throw out a, I just want to throw out a theory here. I'm not saying it's going to work. And I don't want to get too allegorical. But if we can find something in the New Testament that gives me justification for being allegorical, then I'm going to be allegorical. But I'll let you see if you can figure it out. Is it 1 Corinthians? Is it possibly in chapter 10? Verse 4? What does it say? Okay, speaking of drinking, what kind of drinking? Spiritual. That's interesting. And that the rock was Christ. Immediately telling me now, I have maybe a little leeway hermeneutically to do what? Go look at, remember, whenever we talk about possible allegory, what, what's my argument always? I can't make it allegorical unless I'm given some direction. Here I'm given a little bit of direction. So think about this from a, a pitch. I'm just going to end with this. I know we didn't get very far, but I want you to think about this allegorical, right? Are the people in sin? Yes, they're literally provoking God. They're trying God. How does God respond to their sin? He responds to their sin 
by having Moses strike, it doesn't say strike the rock, hits the rock, and what flows from it? Water. Are we guilty of provoking and tempting God because we're not happy with what God wants? Yes. How does God respond to our sin? He, gave, he gives us a rock, and that rock is Christ, and Christ was struck, and what flows from him? Living water, blood, to, to feed us, to drink, for us to drink, for us to feed upon, so that we'll never hunger and thirst again, and to wash away our sins. Now that's a beautiful picture. I'm not saying it's perfect. But I'll end with that. I want you to consider that. So here's what I want you to leave with today, all right? I know we're doing this much shorter today, but that's okay. I want you to leave with these two concepts. What does it mean to tempt God? And it is beautiful that sometimes when we're guilty of whatever it means to tempt God, that he gives us a spiritual rock that is struck, which gives us living water and washes away our sin and provides for us spiritual drink. All right, I'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. We thank you for Christ, the rock which was struck, which gives us spiritual water. We thank you for this. I pray that we would give this much thought and consideration. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.